It feels like it's been a while that we've been in the book of Galatians, and we'll be coming to a close today, So as we come to chapter 6, if you want to turn there. Um, and it does at times, even as I prepare, feel a bit repetitive as Paul has this theme that he keeps coming back to time and time again. Winston Churchill said that a good approach to public speaking is you take one idea and you give it a whack. You talk a while, and then you give your idea another whack. You talk a little more, and then you give it yet another whack. And then when it's time for the finale, you give it a terrific, terrific whack. In a sense, that's a pretty good description of what Paul did throughout the book of Galatians. He has this main idea that he keeps whacking away at. Salvation is by grace through faith, not by the law or by rules. It's a gift to be received, not a wage to be earned. And as he comes to the end of the book, it's time for one last whack. Only this one is very practical. What does the life of grace look like as opposed to a life of law? And so he writes, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 6, Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. Something the law doesn't do. But watch yourself, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Each one should test his own actions. Then he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to somebody else. For each one should carry his own load. Anyone who receives instruction in the word must share all good things with his instructor. Do not be deceived, for God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the spirit, from the spirit will reap eternal life. So let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those to, be, to those who belong to the family of believers. You know, when you focus on the law instead of grace, what's often lost is compassion. Consideration for others, because we're so busy looking for where they've crossed the line and what they did wrong, we can't see anything else. When these are lost, it inevitably leads to things like a judgmental spirit, talking behind people's backs, the three C's of criticizing, complaining, and comparing, thinking we know what others should be doing while we're blind to our own faults and our own failings. And history is filled with examples that show that despite our best intentions, no matter how good things may begin, attempts to legislate behavior inevitably leads to bondage and intolerance. So, for example, you have someone like John Calvin, whose impact on Christianity has been enormous. He was a contemporary of Martin Luther, and his thoughts are contained simply in what's known as institutes, Calvin's Institutes. That writing is a huge legacy that continues to influence Christian thought and practice today. But before he entered the ministry, Calvin was trained as a lawyer. 
His ideas of justice and right and wrong shaped all that he did and wrote. And with a burning desire to please God and expand his kingdom on earth, God used him in touching the church, especially in the city of Geneva where he lived. And for the 16th and 17th century, much of the society reflected Calvin's ideas on justice. So city officials could summon any citizen in for questioning about any matter of faith. Church attendance was compulsory. It wasn't an option. Laws covered such things as how many dishes you could serve at each meal, what color clothes you could wear. Some of the things forbidden were feasting. Dancing, singing, pictures, statues, church bells, organs. In fact, musical instruments were outlawed in the city of Geneva for over 200 years. Altar candles, indecent and irreligious songs, staging or attending theatrical plays, wearing makeup and jewelry and lace, immodest dress, speaking disrespectful to your betters, whoever those were. Extravagant entertainment, swearing, gambling, playing cards, hunting, drunkenness, or naming your children after anyone but one of the figures in the Old Testament. If you search through prison records from that period, you find a father who literally spent time in jail because he named his son Claude, and that's not an Old Testament name. A woman was jailed because her hair was deemed to have reached an immoral height. Neighbors were encouraged to spy on each other and report violations to city officials so that they could avoid any outbreak of immorality in their midst, trying to control through law. But it wasn't just Calvin. Before our country was a nation, and this is for you, Warren, since you live in Connecticut, there was something called the Code of Connecticut, which included, no one shall run on the Sabbath day or walk in their garden, or anywhere else except to and from church. That's the only place you could walk. No one shall travel, or cook meals, or make beds, or sweep house, cut their hair, or shave on the Sabbath. If a man kisses his wife, or a wife kisses her husband on the Lord's day, the party at fault shall be punished at the discretion of the court or magistrate. In more recent times, Just a few years ago in California, there was an organization working to elect government officials in order that, as they said, government can become the police department within the kingdom of God on earth, ready to impose God's vengeance upon those who abandon God's laws of justice. The Pharisees of Jesus' day would have been right at home with such things. Unlike Love, which Paul says keeps no record of wrongs, an emphasis on law instead of grace, keeps a scorecard to make sure we're doing enough, and it keeps us looking over our shoulder to see who's watching. And as a result, we live in a life that's fearful. We leave, live are to live and treat others right, not to earn God's love, but because we already are loved. And gave his life to set us free. As Jesus said, if you love me, that's when you're going to obey me. It's a message we need to hear again and again and again. God already loves you. 
You don't have to do anything to earn it. Just accept it. If Christ is your Savior, God has already forgiven you. There's nothing you need to do to earn His forgiveness. Just receive it. As Paul and Silas said to the jailer in Acts 16, simply believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. That faith response is not merely to a list of rules. That's what Jesus condemned others for when he said, these people are merely honoring me with their lips. Their hearts are far from me. Their worship is in vain because their teachings are nothing but rules taught by men. It's a love relationship with the living God. Like a master craftsman, Paul chisels away at every argument in order to display the multifaceted beauty of God's grace and work accomplished through Christ. A work that brings salvation complete at the cross. Nothing you or I can do can be added to it. And Paul finishes his letter with one final appeal, one that is very practical. How grace over law impacts how we live and relate to the world around us. Because he had said in chapter 5, verse 6, the only thing that matters is faith expressing itself through love. Love for God and love for others. He says in chapter 6, verse 15, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, which is representative of the law and covenant with God, means anything. What counts is being a new creation. Because saving faith is a relational faith. It's seen in the instructions he gives in chapter 6, which deal with faith to be lived out in community. Because where the law is negative, telling us not what to do, or telling us what not to do, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not take the Lord's name in vain, do not, do not, deny it. Grace is positive. It tells us what to do. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do good to them. Help one another. Feed the poor. Heal the, heal the sick. Care for those who are hurting. Or as one commentator put it, in light of the gospel of grace and the power of the Spirit that, God, that Paul had already written about, they're now to free to help others. In other words, a faith based on grace rather than law is caring, not condemning. Its primary concern is for the well-being of our neighbor, not being right or being in control. So Paul says, if someone is caught in a sin... If they slip and fall, it's not talking about willful sin here. But if someone slips and falls, you who are spiritual. Some define spiritual as people, you know, how much praying you do, meditating you do, reading the Bible you do, going to church, things like that. Spiritual activities. The Pharisees define those who are spiritual as those who kept the most laws, could quote the most scriptures, who held the highest position. But for Christ, for those who are spiritual are those whose lives reflect their faith, who bring their actions in harmony with that faith. For those of you who are doing that, he says, if your brother slips, those of you who are spiritual, whose faith is in harmony with your life, Restore them. It's a word used for mending a broken bone, to bring together. So the Pharisees and the law were concerned with whether a person broke the rules. Faith is concerned with a person who has broken relationship and wants to bring them together. 
Restore them gently, he says. That's why Jesus could summarize the entire law simply as loving God and loving your neighbor. When you see someone fall, how caring are you? Or are you more likely to condemn and point out their faults and their failures and their weaknesses? Does your heart go out to to them, seeking to restore them? Legalism condemns, grace restores. A faith built on grace rather than law is caring, not condemning. But it also, Paul says, is humble, not proud. Paul says, if someone trips and falls, restore them gently, literally in a spirit of meekness or of humility. He even says why, as it carries a note of caution, that we fully identify with their weaknesses, because he says, watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. There's no place for putting ourselves above others or their temptations. The ones who fall are often the same ones whose guard is down because they think they're immune to that temptation. It won't happen to me. We don't judge people when they fall. We identify with them. Isn't that what Jesus did? He identified with us in our weaknesses. While we were yet sinners, Scripture says, Christ died for us. It's like the truth of that old saying of George Whitfield's, when he saw a man being led away to the gallows, he said, there but for the grace of God go I. All of us fall. God came in Christ to pick us up, and he calls us to do the same. In 2 Corinthians, Paul wrote, God comforts us in our troubles so that we can comfort those in trouble with the same comfort we have received from the Lord. If you translate that verse literally, it would read, God comes alongside of us in our troubles so that we in turn can come alongside of those who are in trouble and then provide them the same strength and comfort we found from the Lord. After all, when it comes right down to it, can't we really identify more closely with people's failure than their victories anyway? A faith based on grace rather than law is caring, it's not condemning, it's humble, it's not proud, and it's helpful, not critical. Fault-finding is not a spiritual gift. Grace and mercy are. Scripture repeatedly warns against having a critical spirit because it's not of God, it's of the flesh. In verse 2, Paul says, we are to bear each other's burdens. Literally, we're to lift up, to carry, to help lighten, lighten their load. Burdens means troubles, the weights of life. In Romans 15, he said, We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Speaking of the load, we all bear at times because at some point in our life, we all need a hand, someone to reach out and to walk alongside of us. There are times when we are lonely or suffer loss or face uncertainty, and it's those times someone needs to come alongside of us. Just as Christ does for each one of us, coming alongside, walking with us, or literally, Paul had said in chapter 5, he sends his spirit to live within us. We've got to be willing to do that for others, which means willing to get our hands dirty sometimes. If someone slips, we love. We don't condemn. We don't criticize. 
Oswald Chambers said, To be a disciple means we deliberately identify ourselves with God's interest in other people. How are you bearing others' burdens? Praying for those who are struggling and facing difficulty? Maybe even fallen? If someone's hurting or struggling, do you ever call them or send them a text or a note? Or do you wait until they ask? Bearing others' burdens means we are right there taking initiative. And when others are struggling, we don't criticize for their failings. We bear their burdens with them. Paul continues in verse 2 saying, When we help carry others' burdens, it's then we are fulfilling the law of Christ. A law in John 13 which says, A new command I'm giving you, love one another as I've loved you, so you must love one another, for it's by this that all men will know you're my disciples, the love you have for each other. A faith built on grace rather than law is caring, it's humble, it's helpful, it doesn't place blame, it takes responsibility. Paul says each one should test their own actions. For then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. For each one should carry their own load. Don't compare and criticize. Focus on your own work, your own calling. Because you stand before God based on what you do, not what someone else does. It says each one should test their own actions. It's always a temptation to look at others and then compare or judge ourselves based on them. We're created by God to do the work he sets for us, not that he sets for others. How well are you fulfilling God's call for your own life? That, Paul says, is what you take pride in. Like, just like when Jesus was talking with Peter after the resurrection, telling him what's going to happen, Peter turns and he sees John and he knows of John's special relationship with Jesus and he asks, well, what about him? And Jesus said, that doesn't matter. You follow me. So where the law is condemning because it demands others to meet some external standard, grace is caring, the person comes first. Where the law is proud and draws attention to itself, saying, look at me, look what I've done, what I've accomplished, grace is humble. It says, look what God has done. The law is critical. It looks for sin and failure, but grace is helpful. It comes alongside and lifts up those who are weak when they fall. The law places blame and points fingers and draws attention at failures. But grace takes responsibility for our own lives. It doesn't try to tell others how to live. And then one last idea Paul has here is that faith based on grace rather than law is generous. It's not greedy. Anyone who receives instructions, he said, should share all good things with their instructor. If what I have is by law, then I've earned it. It's mine. It belongs to me. I want to hold on to it. But if it's grace, it means it's a gift. All that I have, all that I am, all that I attain is a gift from God. And therefore, I don't have to hold on to it as mine. I can be free to share, to let go. Grace allows us to live with an open hand. The law says, it's mine, I've earned it, I've worked for it, I deserve it. Grace says, it's from God. Paul then says, don't be deceived or misled by those who would have you believe you have to work to get right. 
before God will accept you? Because he says God cannot be mocked. Literally, don't turn up your nose at God. He says it is by grace through faith that you're saved. Don't turn up your nose at God and think now you have to work for it. Because he says we reap what we sow. One of the most obvious neglected laws of nature, at least when it comes to our lives. If you want bananas, you plant banana trees. If you sow a life built upon law and rules and effort, you will reap hypocrisy and judgment and criticisms, all the things that Paul had been warning about earlier in the letter. But if you want fruit, the fruit of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control mentioned in chapter 5, then you plant grace. What kind of seeds are we sowing? One based on obligations or grace. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, he says in verse 8, from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Throughout Galatians, Paul is whacking away at that issue of grace over law because it's so hard to maintain. Yet it's because grace has nothing to prove. In the end, it's grace and love that lets us live out of pure motives. Paul says in verse 11, See what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. Then he gets to their motives. Those who want to make a good impression outwardly are trying to compel you to be circumcised, to live according to the law. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised obey the law, yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your flesh. There's their motive. Selfish. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision nor circumcision means anything. What counts is a new creation. So peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, even to the Israel of God. And finally, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers and sisters. Amen. Because in the end, the only thing that really matters, Paul says, is a new creation. How we are made new. You don't work for it. You receive it. Have you received it? Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for your grace, your overabundance of giving, your love and your mercy and patience and forgiveness and so many traits that really is too much to imagine. We thank you, Father, for what you give in Christ Jesus. Help us to live according to that grace, to live with an awareness that you do love us and want us to respond and receive that love. And we pray, Father, for each one here today that we will be living out of that love or will experience that love if we never have before. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Blessed is his son.